Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleiman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. In looking back on history, we often tend to mark time by the decade. In the world of energy, the decade of the 1970s is remembered as an era of oil crises and concern that the world's energy supply was running out. More recently, the decade of the 2000 teens stands out for the emergence of shale, oil and gas and the growing adoption of renewables. And now, as we embark upon a new decade, it's time to consider what key developments in energy the 2020s might bring. On today's podcast, I'll be talking about energy's future with two experts who've studied past trends in energy technology, economics, and politics, and who will offer their views on where these trends may lead us over the decade to come. We'll take a particularly close look at how renewable energy might develop and barriers to watch out for. Johannes Urpelainen is Professor of Energy, Resources, and Environment at Johns Hopkins University. Michael Acklin is Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Pittsburgh. The two have launched a research program, the Initiative for Sustainable Energy Policy, to promote sustainable energy in emerging economies. Johannes and Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Michael, two years ago, uh, the two of you published a book on the politics of renewable energy that looked back to trends starting in the 1970s. In the book, you state that energy policy, as we think of it today, really didn't become a distinct discipline until the 70s. What changed during that decade, and what was the aim of of U.S. energy policy at that time? So to think about what changed in the 1970s, we really should need, need to remember where we stood at the time. Uh, we had energy systems, including the electrical grid, that had uh, evolved in a somewhat chaotic manner over, uh, over time. But I'd always respected at the time the principle that what the U.S. needed was affordable and abundant energy. And so when you had new energy sources, such as nuclear power, uh, these sources were gradually added to the system as long as they were able to meet uh, this, uh, this requirement. And then, as you know, the, the 70s happened, and things uh, changed quite, uh, quite radically at the, at the time. And there are kind of several reasons for that. Uh, one reason for the, this kind of change in policy and perspective over energy policy was driven by the, the oil shocks, which questioned whether the U.S. would be able to continue to have access to, uh, to cheap and, uh, and plentiful of, uh, of oil. Um, another thing that, that, that happened at the time was uh, a series of nuclear accidents. So in the 70s, you had the Three Mile Island accident. Um, later on, you had uh, Chernobyl happening. And, and these accidents kind of questioned uh, the, the safety and reliability of, these, of some of these new technologies like, uh, like nuclear power. And so the, the, these shocks all took place over a, over a time span of about uh, 15 years or so, and they radically changed how people thought about the future of, of their energy system. Um, we, we were at the time in a context of uh, people thinking more carefully about the environment. So you had the environmentalist movement that was, getting grow, that was growing and getting stronger in, in the U.S., but even more so in countries like Germany. And so people started to want more from their energy systems than just something that was abundant and cheap, but they also wanted something that was, for instance, more respectful of uh, of the environment. And so in, in, in our book, uh, which we called Renewables, the Politics of a Global Energy Transition, what we're saying is that the, these shocks that happened in the 1970s were crucial to kickstart 
a change in how energy policy was designed and the aims it was uh, it was uh, targeting. And so that's when you really can observe a change in what was happening. You see a beginning of investment in research and development in order to find alternatives to what the, the, the status quo was at the time. And, and these shocks were really, really crucial because uh, it's, you know, the, the, our energy systems, like the, the grids, are very path-dependent depend, systems, so they don't change very quickly. And so you needed something to motivate these changes uh, you needed something to to push uh, politicians to to try to something else, um, and that was what the voters wanted at that time in the aftermath of these uh, of these shocks. So these shocks were really the the kind of the, the the key element to get the ball rolling in a in a different direction, one that was not only about uh, having as much energy for as little money as possible, but it was about meeting these additional uh, additional demands by by people. Well, as you pointed out, uh, the two of you in the book, uh, this was, really was a shock in the, in the 1970s. We had the, the, the oil shocks in 1973 and again in 1979. And prior to that, again, as you point out, energy was cheap and abundant. So there was really no guiding policy other than just the, the assumption that it was going to be in, in, in good supply. So, so this obviously changed. So, so Johannes, in the 70s, the U.S. actually quickly became a leader in promoting clean energy. What specifically did the U.S. government do at that time? If you look at the U.S. government's response to the energy crisis, first in 1973, then in 1979, I would highlight three different measures that had a big impact. The first one was that when the U.S finally created an energy administration, it created a fairly sizable research and development program for renewable energy. And one of the really interesting case studies we found that working with the energy industry, some of these programs were really able to bring down the cost of solar power from its astronomical level pretty quickly. And this was very important to get some dynamism in the industry that really did not exist at the time. The second important move was a piece of legislation called PURPA, or Public Utilities uh, Regulation and uh, Policy Act, from 1978. It created an obligation for electric utilities to purchase renewable energy, and it provided a kind of feeding tariff that made renewables more effective. And California really picked this up and started investing in wind energy. This then created demand uh, for this new technology, and as a result, the industry was able to grow. And interestingly enough, California was, for example, a major importer of Danish wind turbine technology at the time. And then because of this state-level response in California, the U.S. really played a critical role in creating demand for renewable energy, not just inside the United States, but also globally. Let me ask you about that a little bit further then. So you, you just mentioned earlier, we talked about the, the oil shock from the 70s, its development in the 1980s with policies, uh, you know, uh, pushing the development, particularly in California, of wind energy. You've also described um, that there, is a, 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 there are phases of renewable energy development, again, beginning with those shocks and then moving on to broader uh, support from the population. And then some pushback happens. Can you tell us about the pattern, Johannes, how this has played out in the United States and how, I guess, it played out in the 70s and the 80s? In the initial stage, so if you look at, for example, the 1970s, renewable energy is still so expensive that it doesn't really 
government had an interest in this technology was because the crisis was such a kind of scary and fundamental shock that they were open to experimenting and trying new things. Over time, these policies, these R&D investments, they reduce the cost of renewable energy, and it becomes a at least a plausible new source of energy. And because of this, the renewable energy industry starts to grow, and the industry itself then starts demanding additional policy support. And therefore, over time, you have this phenomenon which we call the renewable energy lock-in, where renewable energy really becomes a mainstream part of the energy industry. And so that's how you go from the 1970s to where we are today. So, Michael, uh, as uh, American involvement in clean energy collapsed in the 1980s, investment in other countries, notably in Germany and Denmark, took off. How were the situations fundamentally different in those countries compared to the United States at that time? So the the conflict, the, the pushback that came against renewables there um, took place in, in quite a different uh, quite a different context. Um, part of it, the, the, the difference in context stems from uh, sheer randomness. For instance, uh, in Germany, uh, you had uh, the reunification uh, in the 90s that um, took a lot of attention from policymakers and potential uh, losers from the renewable transition uh, away. Uh, but I think there are actually two really key differences that, that um, really were, were instrumental here. So one is uh, these countries have, uh, you know, compared to the U.S., quite different political systems. Uh, they have a multi-party system, which means that you have more room for uh, new coming parties to change, um, to change the, 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 the status quo. Uh, so in Germany, for instance, the Green Party became uh, you know, an influential Actor on the, especially on the on the left, uh, it entered the German Parliament in the early 1980s, and so the, these these differences in political systems actually uh, gave different type of environments for the renewable energy sector and how sustainable it would become. The second, uh, I think, difference in between Germany and Denmark on the one hand and the U.S. on the other hand is that both in Germany and Denmark you observe the creation of coalitions. Uh, that were not that didn't happen in the U.S. and were helpful to to make the the, the uh, these pro-renewable energy policies last over the long term. Um, to give you a couple of examples, so for instance, uh, farmers in Germany were actually often supportive of um, renewable energy policies, even though they might have been more on the conservative side, and one would have therefore expected them to be perhaps more hostile to these uh, to these policies. But they were in favor of it because they often had small hydro stations on their on their land, and therefore were uh, gained financially from these uh, from these policies. And so you had these weird coalitions of conservative uh, farmers that were allied in some cases with uh, with uh, green supporters, and these coalitions helped uh, help these policies last over a long uh, period of time. Um, in Denmark, you also see that uh, you know, uh, wind power became a, a strategic industry, and that, again, gave you a lot of more buy-in from political elites across the spectrum, and that helped these, uh, these industries um, benefit from these pro-renewable policies over in the 1990s 
uh, and, and after. And I think these are kind of two facets that are not quite there or have a different um, constellation in the U.S. that explains to some degree why uh, the, the, the conflict over renewables was quite turned out differently in the, in the U.S. From, uh, compared to Europe. Well, also in Germany and Denmark, I imagine there was not a strong fossil fuel industry to push back as well. Well, I mean, Germany has, you know, coal reserves, right? So that, that, that could have been a, you know, a key player. Um, utilities, I mean, in Germany, one thing that happened was that utilities uh, had their, you know, were, were kind of focusing in the early 90s on what needed to happen for uh, reunification, right? And so that, that kind of took their attention away. And, um, you know, that was perhaps an element of luck in the, in the whole story. Um, but you could have imagined pushback of a similar scale, um, but it's, it's it's the 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 the, the where and, and you know you actually observe also that uh, when Helmut Kohl was elected, um, he initially was quite skeptical about renewable energy policies. Uh, but again, there were there was enough buying from from these different uh, constituencies that it uh, allowed these policies to uh, to last. Johannes, is clean energy today as dependent on political support, particularly in the U.S. as it has been in the past? I don't think it's quite as dependent. Initially, because renewable energy was clearly much more expensive to generate than conventional coal-fired power, for example, it was very important that the government provided these generous subsidies. But today, if we look at the cost of generation itself, in many cases, it is actually the cheapest, the most affordable alternative. And as a result of that, renewable energy has gained its own momentum. Now, if we want to push renewable energy at the pace that we need to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, to limit climate change to below two degrees global warming by 2100, we still need public support for that. That will require significant policy intervention. But overall, I would say that renewable energy has really come a long way. And in the energy industry, it's widely considered a pretty promising and uh, often the, the best investment in this area. So let's go to where we stand uh, today and looking to the future. Michael, what key challenges for renewable energy development do you see for the 2020s? I think the, 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 the question is really, um, you know, the deployment will continue uh, in all likelihood to, to, to increase. Um, the question is, what could slow it down? And I, I think here there are kind of three groups of, of, of challenges um, looking that w- when we look ahead. The, the first one, you know, kind of I would group under kind of technical and economic issues. So when we think here about uh, the cost of utility-scale storage or how to deal with issues such as intermittency. So that's going to be one set of, of, um, of, uh, of uh, challenges. Um, the second set uh, is still going back to ex- surviving or existing still uh, political support for uh, for fossil fuels. Uh, we have a few examples of these kind of backlashes in the in the U.S. Um, recently, there have been discussions about uh, regulations that uh, prevent coal plants from shutting down in states like uh, Indiana. Um, this, however, I think is going to Decline. This kind of hostility is going to decline, just as because coal uh, is just going to be not competitive enough. 
Um, the, the, the bigger challenge, I think, looking ahead is to design an energy systems in a way in which the, the key actors remain financially viable. Um, when you look at the performance of uh, publicly traded utilities, they have often been suffering from the, the changes uh, that were implemented over the last 20 years. Um, it has created all kinds of issues in terms of funding uh, or investing in maintaining the, the grid, if we talk about this part of the, the energy system. Um, and so, you know, that, that has created all kinds of incentives for utilities um, to also try to slow down or um, to slow down the deployment of, of renewables. And we see that, again, in some other states in the U.S. where there have, for instance, been punitive taxes uh, for households that wanted to have solar panels on their, on their rooftops. Um, and and this, this financial viability also affects renewable energy firms, right? Because um, even though they're much less dependent on political support, uh, as Johannes mentioned earlier, um, they're still affected by political shocks. Um, I, for instance, done a study in which we looked, at, in which I looked at the the effect of um, of trade barriers on uh, on on renewable energy companies' valuation, and and that still had an effect and was able to to hurt their um, their 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 profits. So we we have a situation in which the the renewable energy industry on the on the private side um, is doing okay, but it can still be affected by these, by political uncertainty. And political uncertainty in many key countries is likely to remain reasonably high with short-term changes in terms of how, um, how this industry is being supported uh, or not. And so that, I think, will create, again, some potential delays in terms of how, uh, in terms of continuing deployment at a pace that is consistent with what is needed from an environmental standpoint. You know, going back to that comment you made a couple minutes ago about designing the system so that the viability uh, of electric utilities uh, continues, are there any good policy solutions for that at this point? And obviously, as, as renewables penetrate the system more and uh, distributed renewables take away some of that load from, from you know, the utilities, uh, it sounds like it's a major issue. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a, really, it's a really tough question because we're talking about a very complex system. Um, I, I would note that there have been some, you know, thoughts about, for instance, uh, the role that uh, electric vehicles could play in terms of strengthening demand, and so utilities um, could possibly benefit here from an increase in, in demand for electricity coming in the in the future. Um, so that might be one way, you know, to think about what kind of options uh, these utilities have. Um, there have been other reports looking at, for instance whether utilities could, um, you know, develop other activities. So, for instance, uh, going back to being more active on grid maintenance. And so here, part of their uh, financial resources would come from, uh, from, the, from government investments. Uh, but what this exactly will look like remains, to me at least, an, an open question. To what extent is intermittency going to be a, a hurdle for renewables in terms of their proliferation, how much of a challenge is that on the system, and, and how much can it actually slow their growth at this point? So I think it's quite clear that intermittency is really the main issue with, with renewables. If you think about what is the difference between generating electricity from wind or solar as opposed to coal or natural gas, it's really that wind and solar are not dispatchable. You cannot decide 
put on solar power if the sun is not shining. So I think a lot of these policy challenges that are going to be critical moving forward will be about dealing with the issue of intermittency. One key policy that I think is essential moving forward is dynamic pricing. You want to be in a situation where the price of electricity reflects the available supply at that time, because that will allow you to complement renewables with these very flexible sources of supply that you can ramp up and down when renewables are not available. It could, for example, encourage battery storage. The other thing that I think will be very helpful in dealing with intermittency is going to be investing in transmission. In a large system like the United States or India or China, there are always going to be some places where the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. Well, not always, but in at most of the time, there are some places where these resources are available. So if you have a very robust transmission system, you can take advantage of that to supply electricity where it is needed across the entire system. And I think these are really going to be the, the key issues that policymakers, regulators, and investors need to deal with. Let me ask you this. Looking forward to the 2020s, uh, what shocks to the system might we expect or possibly what could happen uh, that would give, you know, further propel the development of, of uh, new energy technologies akin to what happened in the 1970s, but obviously half a century on? Uh, Johannes. I would say that the most important thing would be if there's some kind of a technological breakthrough or rapid progress in battery storage, because that would really address the intermittency issue. And we've already seen in some places like Hawaii and recently in India, cases where the cheapest supply solution in a certain location has been a combination of solar and battery storage. And if you can get to that point more widely, then that can really result in rapid growth of renewables because your biggest problem disappears. At the same time, there also, of course, is downside risk. For example, we know that renewable energy requires these different materials. Batteries require lithium and so on. What if there is some kind of a geopolitical conflict that makes it harder for these companies to get access to these resources? We are only now starting to grapple with the geopolitics of renewables, and that could become a significant political issue in the future. Well, taking that political issue just a, a step further, the United States, obviously, over the last decade or two, has been really a, a hotbed of, of, of opposition to, uh, to energy transition. Do you think we're going to see this uh, opposition and this polarization continue in the 2020s, or will we see a significant break? And it's interesting to note, uh, just today in the newspaper I was reading about, um, uh, you know, new, not in the newspaper, but in online, uh, about uh, new initiatives from the Republican Party uh, in terms of uh, negative emissions technology, and I think we're going to see some other uh, energy um, uh, initiatives coming from that party. But what do, you, what do you expect for the 2020s? I think if there's anything that Michael and I have learned from writing this book, is that this is not going to be easy. There's going to be lots of challenges. It's going to be quite a significant conflict. And we are not going to solve this easily in a purely technical way. It's going to be very political. 
But at the same time, I am optimistic in the long run because renewable energy is a very good way of generating energy. And as we make progress on technology, regulation and policy, I think the advantage that renewables have is only going to grow. We already know that younger Republicans are more concerned about climate change, more open to new energy solutions than older Republicans are. And overall, renewable energy is actually not as polarized on many other topics in the United States. So it seems to me that we will move into the right direction. But because of the political system and the high level of overall polarization, it is going to be difficult and it's going to be a painful process. Michael, let me ask you this. So um, time is very much of the essence in meeting the climate goals set out in the Paris Climate Agreement. What impact do you think this time pressure, and it's becoming more apparent, it seems, every day, what impact will this time pressure have on energy policy in this country in the 2020s? So my sense is that, the, the, you know, to, to, to be able to answer this question, we need to think about who would be reactive or sensitive to that time pressure. And, you know, for a long time, the, the answer in the U.S. was not that many people. Right, uh, the the constituency that really cared strongly enough about the, about climate change to be aggressively demanding from their uh, elected officials to do something tended to be very small. Even even among Democrats, you know, the climate change was often officially uh, an issue that was that ranked highly, but in practice, um, there were few voters that were really willing to uh, to push for for aggressive change here. Um, so, so the question is, you know, is, is that changing? Um, to some degree, it looks like that is changing to, to a, a little bit, right? We see that um, it has now become a, high, a more salient topic in the, in the current uh, presidential election on the Democratic side. So, so increasing the pressure here may have an effect indirectly by um, helping candidates and possibly future elected officials uh, to to spend more political capital on on uh, on uh, implementing the kind of policies that are needed for for further uh, further deployment. Um, on, on the other hand, I would also say that the U.S. is characterized by having a lot of you know, what we call veto players, that is, actors whose uh, you know support is needed for things to change. And um, I'm not sure how sensitive these actors will be to. Uh, to the kind of pressure or the timeline um, imposed by by uh, the needed action in terms of climate policy. So, so my sense overall on, on balance is that the, the time pressure coming from the Paris Agreement might not be the most effective way to uh, focus people's minds on, on, on energy policy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Johannes, let me ask you this. So debate in this country seems to be rising over the future role of natural gas, uh, and the locking in of this resource, meaning, you know, as, as we get more pipelines, gas pipelines, gas generation facilities uh, for electric power, once, those, once those, uh, that infrastructure is in, it gets a little bit more difficult not to use it in the future. Uh, does history give us any guide on how this issue of lock-in of a certain resource may play out? And, and do you expect that uh, natural gas will become you know, a, a very much a, a, a sort of a permanent resource in, these, in the United States? That's a really important question. We've for a long time thought of natural gas as kind of a transition fuel, a bridge fuel, some people call it. But 
increasingly, you now hear people expressing concern that because we need to decarbonize fast, natural gas might be a bridge to nowhere. To me, it seems that a lot of this really depends on whether the intermittency issue for renewables can be controlled. So if renewables and storage can become a competitive solution, then natural gas will at some point over time lose some of its position and become less and less important because there's no obvious case for it as long as there is at least some sensitivity to climate change and other issues. On the other hand, if intermittency remains a major issue and we are unable to supply our needs at different times of the day and the year with renewables, then it's hard to imagine what the obvious alternative to natural gas would be. So I think what is going to happen here is that we are going to see less natural gas and more renewables than people would have thought at the peak of the shale gas revolution. But I think there is a strong case to be made that we need to move away from natural gas faster than we thought about five to ten years ago. And because of this, there is going to be opposition and concern about this lock-in, which you rightly pointed out is significant, given that very large investments have been made in gas-fired power plants, pipelines, and fracking infrastructure. Do you think we're past the point of no return at this point with natural gas? I mean, quite a lot of investment has been made in recent years. I don't think there is any way that we would immediately be able to stop using natural gas. But at the same time, there is pressure to reduce the growth and at some point start substituting renewables for natural gas. So I would say that there is still quite a bit of uncertainty about the gas scenario in the United States. In, in recent years, U.S. energy policy is, is sharply diverged from that, what we, we generally see in Europe and in other uh, you know, important uh, areas, uh, energy areas such as in China uh, for energy consumption. What global role might the U.S. play in global energy policy and the energy transition in this coming decade? So I think even if we set aside, if you know, in the worst case scenario in which um, the U.S. political system is gridlocked and no new policies come up, um, the, the U.S. still can play a major role. And, you know, it, it remains a, an incredible source in terms of, of human capital. It has huge resources, both in the public and private sector, that can be spent on uh, research and development and bringing up the kind of in- innovations that Johannes mentioned earlier, uh, for instance, in terms of storage. And so you can still mobilize these resources to provide the kind of change that would uh, make a difference across, uh, across the world. Um, and beyond this, you know, the U.S. remains uh, a, a large, large, large market, right? It's a large market with many rich consumers. Um, and so, you know, we can see here, again, um, investment-driven changes. Um, for instance, you know, think about Tesla, right? Um, you can think about uh, the, the private sector wishing to, to appeal and to capture part of this, uh, of this lucrative demand. Um, and so that, again, be, could be a role that you know, would, even, would be independent to a large extent of what the government um, actually does. And, and you know, on, on this theme still also is that uh, the, the U.S. is still quite energy hungry, right? And so this opens up opportunities uh, for, for new ideas, 
Um, I think we talked about earlier, for instance, using electric cars to store power. Um, and so I think there, there are these, these opportunities here that uh, the U.S. with its, uh, with its integrated markets could really uh, be, uh, provide, be helpful in terms of, of moving the, uh, moving the, the, the target in, in the 2020s. So, Johannes, what other trends do you see for the decade? I do think this issue of climate change has really become a major concern. And if we look at things that we need to do, is we need to start looking beyond the power sector or electricity generation where renewables are doing so well. So how do we decarbonize industry? How do we stop deforestation? What are we going to do about heating? What are we going to do about buildings? These are all really important issues that we need to tackle. And it's going to be hard to do at a time when you have this kind of right-wing populist backlash against multilateralism, against globalization. So there's a lot of basic political conflict that is going to make all of this difficult to address. So let me ask you both a final question here. Let's just imagine for a moment it's the year 2070, okay, and we're looking back on history at the decade of the 2020s. How do you think people in the future will look back on this decade, and how will they define it? What will be kind of the overriding theme of the 2020s in terms of energy? Johannes? To me, it's quite clear that we have now reached the point where we really have to take action on climate change. So in 2070, people are going to look back at year 2020 and the coming decade, and they're going to ask, did the international community, did different government people finally start making rapid progress and taking serious action to reduce the rate of climate change and bring us toward a zero emission society. I think that's going to be the one thing that people will remember 50 years from now. And I would add to this that the evolution of energy systems, historically speaking, has been chaotic, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I see few reasons to think that that's going to change uh, in the next uh, decade. So I think the, 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 the answer to what people will be asking regard when they were looking back to the 2020s is to see a, a messy answer to the, to the climate issue and how you know, different countries and different, uh, different regions will deal with it in a, in a, in a, very, uh, in a very different manner. Michael and Johannes, thanks for talking. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Today's guests have been Michael Auckland, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Pittsburgh, and Johannes Urpelainen, Professor of Energy, Resources, and Environment at Johns Hopkins University. For more energy policy news and insights, subscribe to the Climate Center's Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Or check out our policy digests and blogs by visiting our website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 